0: I'm Linnea, and I like Death by DDD. It's a statement. <laughs>
1: This is Death by DVD. You are listening to Hank the World's Greatest, and guess who's back from a vacation in Machu Picchu? It's I-Alexander Nash. I found a statue of a little creature with Carol Burnett. (laughs) Damn it. I was gonna ask if you brought anything back for us, but I'm glad you (laughs) volunteered that information. Carol Burnett got me out of nowhere. I love when the intro jokes are funny. Yeah, so you've been in Machu Picchu, which apparently is a toxic waste dump for aliens, and have brought us back a little gift. A little gift called Fan Requests. On the last episode, we took a request from a fan. Before that, we did five Star Trek episodes for a fan. And now, we have the ultimate. This is the email we received got in June. Sorry about that. From Ryan S., Definitely a horror comedy film that doesn't get any publicity and is a bit of a hidden 80s gem is Munchies. I think that would be a very good movie to cover for sure. Take care and best of luck, fellas. Keep up the good work. I just recently stumbled onto you guys. So, thank you, Ryan. Not only does your support mean a lot to me, but your interaction does too. And I am sorry that it took so long to actually fulfill your request. I mentioned on a previous episode, despite the fact us wanting to fulfill every request, there are just some of them we are not going to do. For example, somebody requested Salo. Just going to go ahead and say that now, no. Not doing that one. But Munchies was really great. It's something we've discussed minorly before, not in a lot of detail. But it really posed the question, what are we going to talk about? So Ryan here really got us thinking.
2: But we found a way to kind of frame this show in to make it because if we really sit here and talk about Munchies, it would take about 20 minutes and we'd have not much left to say about it. But creating this kind of structure around talking about Munchies has made it at least it's made it more interesting to me of kind of the thread that Munchies is a part of specifically in the career of Roger Corman because Munchies is a film produced by Roger Corman, and um, it kind of follows this lineage that he started in the beginning of his career and morphed over the years, and Munchies is a part of that morphing of his career, because if you really break it down, what Roger Corman started to do was make exploitation movies in the 50s and 60s. You know, giant monster movies. um, Well, not giant, but guys in rubber suits gangster movies westerns he was fully into just doing exploitation type films and roger corman has always been an exploitation director and producer so in the 1970s with films like jaws is what really started it and then like star wars kind of cemented the whole thing because in the 70s studio films were art films there were a lot of dramas there was deer hunter michael cimino that kind of stuff that was what studios were used to producing these like you know oscar type films or uh, in the 50s when roger in the 50s and 60s when roger was making um exploitation movies studios were making um a lot of like musicals like big studio production yeah. type deals uh where you really get that money on the screen so in the 70s when spielberg had a hit with jaws and lucas had a hit with star wars studios started making exploitation films because that's what those are i mean it's a killer shark movie that's a i, I mean roger Corner made a lot of like uh, underwater killer movies they weren't Giant sharks, but and they weren't done so kind of exquisitely and well written as, say, Steven Spielberg's Jaws. Well, something of note with
1: Jaws also is the exquisite amount of violence that was given to just America in general. Like you were saying, this was a big budget movie and it's not really quaint. It's not shown off screen. You got what I would say is arterial blood spray throughout that movie and it's very vicious and horrifying. Every single aspect of a cheap B-movie is shown in Jaws. But yes, it is. I mean, not just Peter Benchley, but everyone that worked on that movie rounded it and turned it into a great production. But if anything, it's just the king of the
2: B-movies. It's a well-written B-movie. And the same thing with Star Wars. Star Wars is based on Flash Gordon serials and stuff like that. I mean, you can bring in Akira Kurosawa and all that shit too, but besides that point, I'm just saying that Star Wars at its base is a 1950s, you know, space movie where um, you're fighting space monsters, blah, blah, blah. There's a ton of like bad ones on Mystery Science Theater from the 50s and 60s.
1: Well, I think you get to a point when people, especially with that era of film, everything was either a family friendly comedy or very, very, very serious. And it's almost drowning that there wasn't a great deal of variety. So when you had the ability to knock off things like jaws and like star wars that's i mean the influx of what we majorly love as you know b movie fans started coming out in this era but i think a lot of it was a fan service and exploiting people which is a key in exploitation there's always something to
2: exploit but exploit at the end of- money i'm going to exploit you so i can get monies
1: and a lot of it too is exploiting the nature of people you know they're bored you know people have Very silly interest, so what if we just made a whole movie about driving around the country hitting people with cars and you get points from it? People would love that. What a horrific, violent, brutal idea. But at the same time, that's peak fucking human interest. The same people will sit and watch football on Sunday seeing these guys beat the living hell out of each other or boxing, whatever you're into, martial arts. This is no different. It's exploiting the nature of humans and not just vanity and... A culture obsession and things like that, but knowing who your audience is and how you're going to exploit them, which I think Roger Corman is, is the king of. I don't think there's anyone ever that is more successful in the film industry of exploiting people than Roger Corman. And of, I don't mean this in like, you know, like the Sally Struthers commercial, you know, send 25 cents a day to help this poor starving African kid and the company actually is fucking profiting on all the money or the Susan, Susan G. Komen cure for breast cancer, They keep all the fucking money, things like that. He exploits people at the core of almost an innocent level. And I think some of the movies we're going to talk about tonight, the exploitation is of children, which sounds horrifying. Horrible. (laughs) It does. It sounds horrible, but it's actually exploiting the fact that kids will fucking watch anything. So we can really get away with some dumb shit on screen and people will still buy tickets. Hard way to say, though, you know, this is not a child exploitation episode, but it is, but it's not.
2: <laughs> it's in a different way. We'll get into that. Things change. And like in the 70s, the bottom really started to drop out on independent, cheaply made exploitation films because the studios started having that covered. I mean, think about Gremlins. Gremlins is basically an ex. I mean, Joe Dante directed it. He came from exploitation films. I mean, that's where all the big directors, poltergeist, Toby Hooper, they started pulling even the exploitation directors from the 70s into the 80s to make big-budget studio film. Well, look at
1: James Cameron. I mean, you got Terminator and Aliens. All Aliens is is a Vietnam War epic that's been dressed up as a sci-fi movie, and Terminator 100% is a slasher picture. It's no different than Halloween. All he did was turn it into more of a sci-fi-based thing, again, exploiting people, because all these guys came from the good old Roger Corman film school.
2: I mean, they learned their craft with uh, Corman, and then they were able to get into the studio system and, you know, make some higher-budget pictures, and, make some money. So what does Roger Corman do when he finds that it's harder to exploit, like coming up with a natural exploitation idea on his own? Um, what do you do in the eighties is you start making ripoff films because now I'm going to exploit star Wars by making battle beyond the stars. I'll exploit making alien with, um, uh, God, uh, forbidden world. He started, I mean, there are different stories. They're not exact knockoff replicas, but we're exploiting the idea of Star Wars because that's where the money is at now. So we make Battle Beyond the Stars. We're going to, to continue to make um, things that are very, very similar. I mean, this really came to a head in, say, the late 90s and 2000s when they really started kind of to, trying to exploit video stores with even the titles. And especially when you get into the uh, mid-2000s, you have... Asylum really getting heavy into that exploitation. And the week that uh, Transformers comes out, they um, put Transmorphers on video. So somebody's not-in-the-know grandmother goes to the video store to, to rent something, and they pick up, ah, here's that, that Transformers movie. You didn't read the book. It says Transmorphers. They actually got sued. Asylum got sued on one of those titles. I can't remember which one. I think it was the, the Battleship well, it's exploiting exploitation. I mean, I think that's kind
1: of the key here and kind of a roundabout way of saying a lot of things is in the late 80s and 90s, the king of exploitation that kind of was an architect to the genre started realizing, I can just exploit this itself. And it doesn't really matter
2: because people are going to buy tickets no matter what. Yeah, I will give Roger Corman this because. As I was talking about the asylum, they like they really leaned in heavy to just like we've got to get a product out that is almost exactly like this. At least Corbin did Carnosaur like the week that Jurassic Park came out, Carnosaur came out on video. So, I mean, you're not going to think it's the same thing. But if you're in the mood for a dinosaur movie and all the tickets are sold out of Jurassic Park, eh, just come and get Carnosaur.
1: Most of the people that are involved in this are very celebrated names that when you're a horror and exploitation fan, you'll start seeing over and over and over and over again. And it starts kind of posing a question to you of, of how much of this really was, let's say, like a Gremlins knockoff as it was. We, we have to put something out. We have to get a movie out. We have to do something and we can get all these people we know together.
2: And- well, Gremlins had come out. Critters had come out. Those were both pretty successful films. So Roger wants to dip his toes into the uh, puppet monster, the, the, the shrunken monster thing, Ghoulies, because those tend to sell some units on video. So he decided to make Munchies, which I'm sure was probably a title first and came up with a story later. And he actually hired... Joe Dante's editor to direct the film. Um, what is her name? I could not. I can't remember. Not just right Joe
1: now. Dante's editor. Her film career began. Tina Hirsch, a little bit earlier than that. She did Death Race Two Thousand. She did a lot oh, yeah. of the more primordial epic Roger Corman. But she pictures. literally
2: edited Gremlins. That's the part that's the, the funny part. Very,
1: very uh, storied with her work and 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 some of some amazing products she's put out. But what better way to really and this one is I think the most quintessential Gremlins knockoff. There are. Are so many imitators, but what they all lack to do is follow the story from Gremlins, and you've got the screenplay written by Lance Smith here, and the screenplay more or less was probably the Gremlins screenplay that was Xerox and just names scratched out and different notes, they changed the location of the town, it's no longer a Christmas movie, but for all intents and purposes this is fucking Gremlins, and this is probably the dumbest, third or fourth dumbest thing at least, I've ever fucking said on this show I like Gremlins a lot it's, it's a holiday classic. It's one of my favorite movies. I think it's one of every horror fan's favorite movies. And Dick Miller always makes me laugh. But I can't help but fucking laugh like an idiot the entirety of watching Munchies. I don't know what it is. Maybe because it is so flamboyantly awful and terrible. And it's it's well
2: edited. You can give Even it that. the puppets are
1: bad. <laughs> the puppets change
2: sizes four or five They're times. They're probably the worst of the uh, Gremlins knockoff puppets because they barely move. Their mouths kind of go up and down kind of a little bit, but that's about it. They might as well just be like ham puppets on a stick. And at the beginning of the movie,
1: Arnold, the lead munchie, has sort of a mogwai attitude. He's got a very cute voice. But once they develop personalities, I think the voices that were used
2: for the personalities are a little problematic, that they are very— I'm going to say Frank Welker. I'm going to just guess that Frank Welter did at least one voice on this film. They're all very
1: Tommy Chong, very Cheech and Chong. It's it's it just gets really revoltingly silly and I I don't know and that I'm going to use that term again later I'm sure. Revoltingly silly because I'm upset with myself that I enjoy Munchies and we're, we're going into overtime with this episode because we've got Munchie
2: also to talk about.
1: I also like that. I don't know what's wrong yeah, with me. Yeah,
2: you're fucked in the head I know. That,
1: man. <laughs> I have like, no I, explanation. I will not
2: understand that When I'll go a lot of places but I ain't going to fucking Munchie. Well, see, with this
1: movie, like
2: I've always really identified with the
1: Gremlins. So when I'm watching Gremlins, it's like, yeah, if they weren't homicidal, if they weren't killing people, I really could get down with the Gremlins. Just destruction of property. It's fine. It's fine. I don't have a problem with that. It's a good way to have a party. In Munchies, I wow, feel... Wow,
2: Antifa is just gremlins. <laughs>
1: Oh, poor gremlins. They really get a bad rap. But munchies, I think, are a lot more innocent on that spectrum. Like, oh, they definitely kill some people, and they have... a
2: little rapey at times, though.
1: Yeah, there are a couple of them that really need to be watched at, at all costs, and they need to be checked on by their friends, because the other munchies really shouldn't be letting that happen. You know, you see something like that, you gotta call it out. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter if you're
2: some sort of weird stone deity. When Arnold, like puts on his ring robe and shows his dick to a flight attendant, another munchie needs to call him out. Yes, that would be the acceptable thing to do, and it should have been featured
1: in the screenplay for the children.
2: Topical!
1: <laughs> it's Everything about it's ridiculous, though, but what I think, especially adding in from, from what you were previously saying, what works so well and why I think this is, in fact, a great movie is all down to the the corman school of exploitation is taking all the fundamental things that worked in gremlins and really exploiting them and this itself, for the, the year it came out, 1987, it's one of those kids' movies that adults will have more fun watching because the humor is just over the top. There's Linda Blair, women in prison jokes. You've got Robert Picardo putting on one of the greatest performances I think I've ever seen in his entire fucking career. <laughs> Picardo, it's
2: my favorite movie you're in. It's, yeah, really, man. Well, to me, like, what it harkens back to is an older style of comedy. Um, because with something like Harvey Corman in it, the jokes are very broad and broad in a way that's not like, um, you know, like the date movie. That's our kind of bullshit, fucking broad comedy now, our parody films. But like with uh, Harvey Corman from The Carol Burnett Show, that's very old school, like 60s comedy. And that kind of thread follows through because there's honestly a kind of a John Waters esque vibe going through the movie. Like, it's high camp with almost all the characters. Almost no one lives in a, a, a reality. They're all um, caricatures of actual people. My personal favorite character, Dude. Oh, yeah. Dude is the, the best Stoner in the movie. dude, man. He, no, he's my favorite. Always has
1: been. They didn't even develop the character outside of his name's Dude, and he listens to the Grateful Dead. But some of his one-liners are great, too. The, the munchies are screwing with his records. Or oh, I'm sorry. Harvey Korman, playing a dual role as his stepfather, Cecil Waterman, comes in and pulls the needle over one of his records and he just yells out like that was the 72 european dead man and it's just like if you've met a fucking deadhead stoner it's it's on it's really a hysterical aspect and all the characters i think in the movie despite being just characters are are perfect examples of it our lead paul wants to be a comedian so of course he's dropping one-liners and zingers
2: and quite annoying. He's probably the most annoying character in the film, actually.
1: And it really like, and I don't, I like Jerry Seinfeld, so I don't mean this insultingly, but he's kind of a, a Seinfeld type. It's very sardonic, Everything's sarcastic. He doesn't have the best outlook. His girlfriend Cindy's much more hopeful, but she equally all his failed jokes. She has a joke aside from that, so they bounce off of each other. And then Harvey Korman's other appearances at the very beginning and end of the movie is Paul's father. Everything. Despite sounding as stupid as it does, you watch the movie and it's like, you know what, goddammit, this is kind of good. And it's something innocent enough that you don't really feel like you're being exploited. And I think that's what works so well with Roger Corman is that he can actually exploit the entire audience, the whole consumer, and them not even realize that you just got ripped off. You just spent 90 minutes watching one of the dumbest things you're ever going to see in your entire life, and you're going to laugh at it, and you're going to enjoy it for some reason.
2: Well, it kind of, and I mean, this probably has to do with with the casting of one of the actors, but it kind of feels like uh, the adventures of Pete and Pete in a lot of ways. (laughs) Yeah, it really does. It's just, it's, it's this hyper reality that everybody is in throughout the entire film that kind of makes it enjoyable. And getting back to the thing where it harkens back to old comedy, like, like, the character, the uh, the the munchie that he names, he names it Arnold after Arnold Zippel from fucking Green Acres. Who in 2021 remembers Green fucking Acres?
1: I hate to interrupt you, but I just realized, dude is Doc from Full Metal Jacket.
2: Yes, he is. Yeah,
1: I did not realize that whatsoever. Facts for you guys to tell your friends, you know? The guy that played Dude in Munchies was also in Full Metal Jacket. But that's kind of esteemed. The fucking guy worked for Stanley Kubrick and then in the same year made Munchies. munchies. (laughs) In the same fucking year made
2: Munchies. I worked uh, with this Roger Corman film and Stanley Kubrick. I have a wide variety of career choices ahead of me. Yeah, you've got to give it to him. Wow. Wow. But I think that's what I've always enjoyed about the film. I mean, I was like 10 years old when I saw this. So it was like I was like thirty. I knew so. it was bad, <laughs> but I, I didn't really care because I had seen like uh, critters to that point and gremlins and all that, and I knew this was like a ripoff of those films. But I really didn't care. I enjoyed like the dude shit always made like like Wild Kingdom man. I I didn't even know what a fucking stoner was. I just like knew he was in the Grateful Dead. Like it took me years to figure out. Oh. He was singing Truck in a Grateful Dead song in the film. I had no idea what that was. So the jokes themselves, just his performance made that pay off for me. I didn't know the reference, and it's still – I found it funny. I found it humorous. That's kind of where
1: I mean with, like, child exploitation – You're laughing at this because you're a kid and you've seen these archetypes and these characters on television before. You know, oh, the long-haired guy is going to do something goofy. The guy in tie-dye is going to do something goofy. You don't have a concept of drugs. But the people behind this obviously know what they're doing. They know the references they're making. And it's like the duality when you go back and watch an old Pixar film and you realize there's a lot of filthy jokes within these things that you've never picked up on before. And that's so the parents that have to take their kids to deal with this also have some form of entertainment but really that's exploiting you that's exploiting the audience and i said this a, a while back but kids are fucking stupid and I, d- I don't mean that in a bad way but you can sit a kid down in front of a television set and they will watch some of the dumbest shit in the world and then spend three hours telling you about
2: it like you weren't in the same oh, I room with munchies them up after i saw it i talked it up at school i was like and then this one thing happens and then another thing happens and is, uh, it's 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 pretty good you know what I always Always draw a um a, like a kid-friendly audience to your film. Scenes at a mini golf course, especially
1: destruction. I mean, one way to always get a kid interested in something is multiple scenes of destruction because you've got that fantasy. Uh, we'll get to Munchie in a little bit, but something I couldn't help but notice with that movie is it it really managed to maintain like an eight, nine-year-old, a ten-year-old little boy's perspective of. Just things that would be absolutely amazing. You don't really know what partying is, but if you could party, wouldn't it be really great to have pizza and hang out on a swing set with the girl you have a crush on in your class? Uh, and Munchies has a lot of that, but the Munchies itself is, I think, more adult-themed. It does exploit the child angle but it's some of the jokes are really like you've got to be a bit older to understand where they're coming from yeah, so are fucking vaudeville jokes for christ's sakes and a lot of it's anti-reagan i mean that is a theme also in munchies there's a lot of anti-reaganomics which i can't help but love that these little deities well they're not deities we eventually find out that the munchies they're statues and people of Manchu picchu had the ability with the power of the gods the fire of the gods power my ass the fire of the gods to bring life into them and it would essentially make them indestructible and if they get cut up this is where we really have to figure out how to rip off gremlins because you've got the perfect story with gremlins you get the mogwai wet it reproduces you feed it after midnight some terrible shit's going to happen that worked and it's very very simple you don't have to trick the audience with much this movie gets questionable because the whole aspect is if they get cut up they'll multiply. Well, who's running around with a saber or or something that they'll be able to chop these like things it up? They get cut out pretty easily, though. Well, I mean, that's what I mean. You really wrap it into something, and you have to, to differ from the original story enough that uh, Gremlins, though, is not a children's movie. I think Gremlins has a lot of adult themes, a lot of drastic violence. You can go back to last year's Christmas special if you want to hear me rattle on for 90 minutes about all my thoughts on the very first Gremlins movie. Spoiler alert, Gremlins 2 is probably what we'll do this year for christmas
2: well i don't think specifically munchies is it's kind of odd to say because i don't think it's specifically geared at a child audience but at the same time it is i think it was well it's I a mean, child it's 18, audience
1: 18. of a different time too i mean kids are, were way different in 1987
2: it's kind of leaning more into the 16 17 year old 18 year old market and even older in your 20s with some of the jokes but i think the one thing that does make it and and Roger knew what he was trying to exploit at this point, which is I, I'm i more, more interested in seven-year-olds watching it and shit like that because they'll watch a lot of shit, is the kinetic energy it has because kids are really interested in a lot of things happening fast, all over the place just, and like kinetic energy is just funny to them, like you were saying with uh, destruction is um, just seeing things thrown around, seeing um, the world kind of set off its axis and nothing is as normal as it seems it i mean there's that um what i consider to be a terrible movie i know a lot of people have fond memories of from their childhood the spaced invaders it has that same vibe as that film as well i mean that's a little bit more kid friendly than this film but at the same time it's it's a lot of the same bad jokes it's a lot of the same kind of uh Kind of a not sets, but like location ideas of like small town ideas and shit like that, and a a hyper sense of reality. So it was it was kind of a weird thing in the '80s, um, especially because kids movies and adult movies were kind of slammed together. And I think a lot had to do with the um, the filmmakers, because you end up with people making like Bogart joint like jokes in movies in, uh, in the eighties. Cause the filmmaker really liked Humphrey Bogart movies and they're in their like forties or fifties. And they remember seeing Humphrey Bogart movies on like Saturday morning TV and shit. But what kid's going to understand a fucking Bogart reference? But that's where I came of age is watching movies. Like I've seen very few Bogart movies, but I understand who he was as a, like a character, like a kind of a, as a part of the the cultural lexicon just from watching eighties movies where they make jokes about Bogart. And it's just kind of weird that that's how things go because when you have an older generation of filmmakers making movies that are geared towards kids, you end up getting a lot of really weird references. And I wouldn't say it's so much inappropriate, but just things that aren't, Really geared towards that demographic specifically, and Munchie's is kind of full of that as well. I mean, even with the addition of Harvey Corman, it's just like, remember Harvey Corman from Carol Burnett? No, none of the kids watching this movie knew who Harvey Corman was, but yet you put him in it like he's a big name star, which he, I mean, he is for an adult, though. Yeah, but it worked for the parents that
1: are like, well, Harvey Corman's playing two roles in this movie. I guess I can take little Timmy to go see it with his eight friends because they've been talking about it all day because another kid at school told them. Because that's what... I was that kid! <laughs> yeah, well, the exploitation level comes into there, too. You exploit one kid, and then he goes home and tells all of his friends about this movie, and then every parent has to go and deal with this situation because their kid won't stop talking about it. You've already sold tickets there. So it's not... An evil thing. I mean, yes, child exploitation is a fucking evil thing, but in this sense, the, the the very bizarre manner that we are discussing it tonight, it's not even exploitating innocence, but it's having an idea of what you're going to sell,
2: and a it's lo- understanding how to pry those sticky little quarters from kids' hands to get their money. I mean, the same thing happened in the toy industry, cartoons, the, like all that He-Man shit. You had a product that you then made a story around to sell said product. The 80s was ripe with exploitation of children via just through the media. And not so much, you're not exploiting them and like, as Hank was saying, like in a bad way, like it's some kind of horrible exploitation is going to fuck them up and blah, 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 blah. It's just, it was designed specifically to get money from parents of children.
1: <laughs> and even now, like um, we've had this this debacle before I, Alexander Nash nor myself are specifically big fans of the movie Scream. And so many people will argue, well, you know, we're we're the same age, I know you used to like Scream, and you don't like it anymore. That's not always inherently true because of the level of exploitation. Some people were very jaded by the product at that point point in time. And it's like looking back, let's say, like Munchies as a kid, and you're defending it as a 45-year-old, and... Your whole defense is the point, well, I liked it when I was a kid. That's because the exploitation actually worked. Not everything works on those levels with you, and it has to do with who you are and what you're into at the time. Like, I didn't see Munchies as a child whatsoever. This is something I saw as a grown-ass adult, and it's like I still relate to almost the childlike nuances in it, and a lot of it is just the ridiculous nature of it. And I, I, on like four or five episodes, have made this goddamn reference lately of sometimes movies and I always use it as a reference poorly uh, to not defend the movie, and for the first time I'm going to use it to defend the movie, are like a story being told by a six-year-old. It's just every giant thing in their head, and they get tired of the story at the end, and I'm done. I'm going to end it. And I used it majorly last week when I was talking about Fade to Black. The movie just spirals and spirals and spirals. All it is is a great deal of references, and I feel it can have some similarities with this, because there's so much for another audience inside of this movie that seems to be particularly made for a horror audience talking about Fade to Black. In this instance, it's a children's movie, but I don't feel the direction and the the maneuvering of how the movie runs is explicitly for children, but it works in this situation because you really, you really focus on what's supposed to be a teenager, and almost all the exploits that happen in this movie when you were 17, 16, and I'm Talking from a, a male centric point of view here, especially an '80s, early '90s youth, a lot of it was just crazy stuff: dirt bike races, destroying the
2: mini golf course. A lot of uh, more machismo, it's throwing shit at the screen to see yeah. what sticks. It's fucking and silly that's what made stuff. a lot of great movies. And I think what we're missing somewhat now in exploitation films specifically is they're so calculated. They are so trying to like get a certain aesthetic and this is what I want you to feel and this is exactly how I want this to go. And not enough kind of free form filmmaking is happening as it used to like and say like Cormin allowed in the eighties, which is he needed you to deliver it on time, on budget. I need it to be two reels
1: long. Yeah, you have twenty six days to make this movie. I need you to do it in eighteen days. And under budget. And
2: I don't really care what, like, I care what the final product is, I mean of course he cares about that, it's not complete shit, but as long as he could sell it, you're fine. If I can sell this, you'll be okay, and I think that's what we're missing in modern exploitation film is everybody's just they're so idea-heavy, and when I say idea-heavy, it's plot-heavy and not story-heavy or ideas-heavy. Well, everything heavy. It's is just so like...
1: nuanced from their childhood, and it is uh, exploitation itself. Everybody wants to be the next John Carpenter, so every movie has this John Carpenter 80s score because that's what they grew up loving. I love 80s horror movies, I love slashers, I love this, I love that, I love whatever, giallo. And it always comes back to, okay, but you are 100% replicating that, you're not doing anything for yourself. Corman, his film school, as I like to call it, gave the chance for these people that had ideas to take something and go do something with it. It wasn't always beautiful. It wasn't always the greatest thing. but And not only that, we're talking about ripoffs as well. I mean, fucking James Cameron's career starts with Piranha 2, one of the dumbest goddamn movies on the planet that almost ended his career because he tried to steal a copy of it and hold it hostage because, you know, he's not easy. At the beginning of his career, he wasn't easy to get along with, yet alone... Now I'm sure he's like a weird Roman fucking emperor that won't let people touch him or look at him and things like that, completely off subject. But it's trash. It's 100% trash, but the artist behind that trash is, is is a, in this modern age, you have these budding, beautiful people that don't get the chance to go out there and tackle things because the industry obviously doesn't work this way. But who would have known at any point in time that this smug Canadian guy would go on to do some of the great, and I feel, great work I think James Cameron has done some really amazing productions, but he's not the only person that principally can be used as an example from the Roger Corman Film School. You got fucking Jack Nicholson, yet alone from iconic film performances as an actor, as a writer in the 60s. He did some amazing stuff. He worked with Monty Hellman for two pictures in a row that are just insanely beautiful, and he principally wrote one of them. The other's a heavy base on his idea, and not just that. There's so much more to his career and so many other people from God, I'd say like the late 50s to, to now that really, if it wasn't for Roger Corman and his level of genius exploitation, we half of what we love as a whole, and I don't just mean horror fans, I mean film fans, wouldn't really exist. Roger Corman has done it all because he learned how to exploit you, the audience
2: well, member. I mean, he would give you a prompt. I need this. I need this many scenes of nudity. I need this. and and But the rest of it is your go. And, I mean, he butted heads with people. I know, uh, famously, he did not get Death Race 2000. Uh, It was supposed to be even funnier than it turned out. But he was just, he didn't understand why it was supposed to, like, the humor of it. He wanted it to be a much more serious film. But, to his credit, I mean, he did kind of give Paul Bartel somewhat the benefit of the doubt and let him turn out, which is a, a classic at this point. So, I mean, Roger kind of would give you enough rope to pull yourself up or hang yourself with he was like he was always allowing uh just enough creativity for you to uh, kind of explore and do something because basically i trust you to do this and then he continued out throughout the uh the 90s and that's when things get a little bit rougher in roger corman's grew up into where it is now where he i mean he still produces stuff it's just not to the level i mean the, like the 2010s and shit he was uh him and jim winorski were making like asylum movies they were making piranaconda and stuff like that and sharktopus because he like this is what i can sell so this is what I, I will sell which brings to the point of 90s roger corman and what exploitation turned into in the 90s roger was still producing um a lot of direct-to-video horror films at the time. Uh, he kind of tempered down uh, some, somewhat of the sci-fi and the horror. He was still making them, just not quite as many. But he really got heavily involved, as well as Full Moon Pictures, Charles Band, into making kids' films. And, uh, like, uh, through, uh was it, Moonbeam for Full Moon, I think Concord. Was it Concord New Horizons that made Munchie? Concord.
1: I think the easiest thing to exploit, and this is, you know, obviously... When you talk about child exploitation, it's always in a predatory manner, but because of the exact same reasons when it comes to the entertainment industry, and this too even speaks on both levels of exploitation and abuse, child stars, because children that can actually read lines and perform are such a commodity. They are abused so greatly, not just in terrible sexual ways, but being overworked, not being allowed full educations, not being able to have social interactions, friends, all sorts of stuff that you need growing up. It's a really wretched industry that if you don't walk the line carefully, it just it really is exploiting a child to sell the exploitation.
2: Well, you're exploiting child labor more than anything in in that instance. And I don't think that ever
1: really happened with Roger Corman. I think especially with, with Munchie, 1992, he managed to... I, I it's this is gonna be a hard angle to talk up, but this movie one hundred percent the whole way through is the perspective of like an eight and nine year old little boy.
2: Yeah, because it's Jim Winorski, and Jim Winorski basically is a nine-year-old boy, still is. And it's it, it's so perfect,
1: though. I, I just saw Munchie for the very, very first time
2: recently. Yeah, this is going to be a rough convo, dude, because Munchie is a goddamn travesty. Oh, it is.
1: it is. It should have never happened. It's an absolute mess, but I, I really have to give credit, and it's just astounding to me, laughing more than I thought I've dreaded going through this movie. It is a a, a puppet movie and the puppets voiced by Dom Deloise. Where well, they hear this. This guy is drowning, you know. He's having a very hard time in the ocean. So a boat
0: comes by and says, are you all right? The guy says, it's okay. I have faith in God. Move on the boat goes away just then a helicopter comes by and they all come down and they look at him and they say are you all right do you need any help the man looks at them and says it's okay i have faith in god move on the man drowns he goes to heaven he goes up to heaven and he looks at god and says i prayed and prayed what happened god says i sent a boat and a helicopter <laughs> i sent a boat. A... hello hello operator operator i've been disconnected
1: it doesn't sound entertaining, it doesn't sound fun, it sounds like a fucking nightmare that I think I've had. It sounds like two or three acid trips I've had, because I had this one where I thought a ice machine was Don Rickles, so it's really not that far off from my own reality. And maybe I've been hit in the head too many times throughout my many years of living, but there was something so relative to... Memories I don't have anymore, like growing up, just ridiculous thoughts and theories of sitting in school and daydreaming and hating every second of what I was doing and the escapism children use from what they see on TV and what they use in their fantasies or playing make-believe in my backyard just hoping the school would blow up so we didn't have to go the next day because he had a math test or something like that. Pure innocence, but it's still... This is nowhere near as adult as Munchies, but it still maintains
2: a, a very. There's a childlike innocence to this one, more so than the first one. And this is like, this is my problem with like 90s era Concord, New Horizon, whatever, um, Roger Corman stuff and Moonbeam stuff. Is just they had special effects. They had cute little like rubber puppets and stuff. I mean, the Munchie in this ends up looking like the uh, the the was the Honeycomb Bandit.
1: Oh, that yeah. goofy
2: little fucking thing. Whatever. Can't get enough of them. Su- no, that's the Sugar Crisp guy. That's the Sugar Crisp bear. I'm talking about the honeycomb, like oh, the Tasmanian big furry devil guy. thing with the bug eyes.
1: Yeah, a big crazy looking guy. Yeah, he was like uh, spat out on meth or something. I know who you're talking about. He looks just like um, Jason, what's his name? Jason Schwartzman in Spun.
2: Sure. Yeah, okay. There's a, there's a very big resemblance, I feel. With all these films, I can barely tell the band from the Corman because they're all very similar. Cause they're all very cheap. Um, they were all done in a, like a very schmatsy way where it's very much about like, kind of like, uh, kind of along the lines of being a Hallmark film at the same time as being kind of an irreverent comedy at, so it's just very weird mix of shit. And I never particularly enjoyed them. Probably a lot that has to do with my age at the time. Um, but there was just so much crap being put out um, in the kids' section, uh, like this, and Skateboard Kid 1 and 2, that, like, did a bunch of different movies like this, and at working in video stores in the era, like, kids would rent anything. All the time they would rent stuff like this because they just didn't give a shit. Skateboard on the cover, kid holding a dog, sure, I'll watch this. So you could literally put out any kind of product, and it would be... Profitable in some way. No one really enjoyed the film. I doubt there's many people out there who think Munchie is like, I love that movie from when I was a kid. I questionable. Good
1: God child. Yeah, I know where the Keith David's going on this episode. <laughs> 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 yeah, they got a spot for it right now.
0: Sun is rising early. It's time to start the day just right. A big bowl of burritos and time will fly right by. Each and every morning, all I wanna do is get blackout drunk and then drive that bus for school. The only cereal with 16.9% alcohol by volume. Nice. Get wrecked and seize the day. The official breakfast of Death by DVD. You can find Burials at a grocery store near you today. And be sure to try our new brand, Winos. Now in new and improved sparkling white and red flavor. be get my new of a lizard tan jerky be <laughs> got some time to sit back and relax, I've got a wicked case of a munchies. You know what, I think I'll throw on some of my favorite import Grateful Dead records, and really relax, if you know what I mean, and I think you do. Oh, oh no. What is that? Is, is that? It can't possibly be time for Keith David or David Keith. Well, I guess that means it really is time for Keith David or David Keith. You know, it's a little rude. I just said that I was about to sit down and relax. I have a whole mouthful filled with food. You really think anybody wants to hear that? Well, let's see what's on the table for this week. 2010's Death at a Funeral, a movie about how preparing for a funeral is never pleasant. But for Aaron, it's shaping up to be the worst day of his life. Sibling rivalry, meddling family members, and a little stranger with a big secret threatens to blow the lid off the coffin while Aaron struggles to give his late father a proper memorial. Who plays Reverend Davis? Is it Keith David Oh! Hold on a second. Is it David
1: Keith?
0: It's David Keith! I pray you got that one right. Until next time, goodbye and good luck. And now back to Death by DVD and my bag of chips. Oh yeah!
2: movies, kids would rent them and their parents would just get it for them because they didn't give a shit as long as it kept them quiet for the night. And kids might have enjoyed these. I don't see really who, (laughs) how many kids really enjoyed a lot of these cheaper ones. I mean,
1: I'm sure, I hope somebody would email us or or comment on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Death by DVD. You can follow us all over the place. I would love to get a comment from somebody that loved this as a child, but I would find it hard to believe. Because my question
2: would be what are you, a fucking
1: idiot? But that's just me. (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm in my 30s, and I laughed the entirety of the movie. It's really inappropriate. It is, and I'm like, I'm texting you the entire time I'm watching it, and just, like, I'm laughing, and I feel bad about laughing because these jokes are selling to me, but they're selling to the 9-year-old little boy in me who's like, yeah, dick and farts, that is pretty funny.
2: Well, what's so weird about it is, like, when... Because all of a sudden, Munchie now is Dom Deluise's voice in this cruel little ugly puppet and he grants wishes and he has this like this kid has a party because he wants to have a party because no one in school likes him he's (laughs) like a nine-year-old kid
1: yeah this is like the greatest part of the movie though
2: He has a fucking kegger.
1: Fred Owen Ray shows up. Well, it's not even just that. He fucking, he can do, he can take anybody's voiceover. He's got a great deal of talent, which is strange because the movie begins with a high-speed police chase of somebody that's got, you don't see what Munchie looks like. You just hear Dom DeLuise locked inside of a box, and they drive all the way up to the top of a mountain escaping police officers until they find a bottomless pit. (laughs) And throw the box off of it. Years later, this kid finds them, unlocks... I don't even know what you would call it. I mean, in the last movie, you find out that they were inanimate objects that are brought back to life through the fire of the god. And they have kind of like a reptilian look. You can see that they were really going for the gremlins knockoff thing. But yeah, the honeycomb monster works for this. But he's like a weird shaved dog. I mean, it really looks like a dog that got mange. And it's Dom DeLu- it could be Dom DeLuise's dog that got mange. It looks a little bit like him... And it's way before the era of turning the voice actors to kind of moderately look at as what they were performing, like how you have that with Toy Story and things onward, which only came out like two or three years after, well, this is 1992, sorry, like seven years after something like this. And then you finally are exposed to what the Munchie is. So why the fuck was it? The whole introduction of him being locked into the box or explanation is, well, if I'm locked inside of something, I can't get out. But he can teleport pizza. He seems to have a godlike amount of infinite powers. And all of this is just like.
2: You're getting into the logic of munchy. Well,
1: it's like when you're eight and you just hate <laughs> everything. You know, it's like a school sucks. This is boring. And that's the the aspect I'm of. I'm kind
2: of in love with Jennifer Love Hewitt.
1: Well, I mean, that's where I, I said a little while ago there's a weird. Uh at this this movie is very inappropriate but there's a strange innocence to it because you take this perspective of just an outsider the whole point of the movie is a little boy who is a transfer student he really doesn't fit in his mom is dating somebody he doesn't like and the beginning of the movie i love how we deal with everything we've got these really elaborate daydream sequences and he's escaping through this and he's it's not like the kid hates everything. It's just somebody that doesn't really fit in. And then we get this very typical E.T. story. This is almost an exploitation of a a loner kid finds a friend sort of thing. Fucking Mac and me, stuff like that. And he ends up making friends with Munchie, who I guess were shown at the beginning of the movie can really cause damage in your life. And you get the whole point of the movie is, you got to really know what you want. You can't just ask for things in life. You can't just want stuff because you think it's going to be good. You really have to put thought into it and work for things. And to get to this lesson, he asks for a bunch of stuff. Munchie, to prove that he has these powers, makes it happen. But the way he makes it happen is the volatile fantasies of a fucking pubescent, prepubescent little boy. It's just silly shenanigans. Uh, Getting the, the... Principal in trouble because he's making out With the receptionist and everybody hears it Through the school because the PA system Was turned on it's very innocent Stuff but at the same time it's very filthy The manner that it's handled and delivered To us and it's like who the fuck are you Making this movie for
2: (laughs) Why would you let Jim Winerski make a fucking children's movie I don't get it well I mean we had Harvey Korn in the last one this time We got Artie Johnson from fucking laughing like the the, the caliber of star Dom DeLuise, Lonnie Anderson. These are all like, how did you get Andrew Stevens to wear a shirt this long? I mean, like Andrew Stevens at least makes sense because he was in a lot of shitty stuff like this. I don't know a lot of these people were at the end of their careers and they were like needed the job. But at the same time, like Artie Johnson's your draw. No kid's going to know who the fuck this guy is. And they're. I'm, I got news for you. They're not probably going to find him very funny because uh, the laughing shit went away like real quick. It was not very funny in the 80s or the 90s. So it's just bizarre casting. The script itself is odd because a lot of like we were saying, like the kid has a party and he just has like a, a fucking adult house party with beer and stuff, and, like, no kids from school really show up. It's a bunch of people like, tuxedos.
1: It's really weird. Because Munchie can do impersonations. I think I never got to the end of that story. So he calls the Playboy Mansion as Jack Nicholson (laughs) (laughs) and has a band that is Fred Olin Ray and Brink Stevens and a bunch of girls fly in. There's kegs everywhere, but it still oddly maintains a childlike nature because this kegger's going around, but it was written... I don't want to say well enough, but there was a tension to detail here that when the little girl he has a crush on, played by Jennifer Love Hewitt in her very first role, shows up, her father shows up. So Munchie had at least enough decency to invite chaperones to this weird stripper party (laughs) he's throwing at an eight-year-old's house. I don't know why they took responsibility in the details of the script, but it, it really shows up. So it's odd. Like You can watch it as an adult, but you could see a childlike level to it because... Like what would be the coolest thing in the world if you moved to a new town and had a crush on a really popular person that went to that school that you could throw a huge party and everyone have a good time and he goes and sits on the swing set with her and they hold hands and have a nice talk. So that's what they did with the childlike angle while there are near-naked women gyrating fucking Fred Olin Ray's playing the piano or something like that. Nobody should be at a child's party. None of these cigar-smoking adults should be at a... it. There's fucking kegs everywhere. That's one of the but ways. again,
2: I think it speaks to the culture at the time where, like— Well, it's the fantasy. You know, you're you're eight. It's years the old. fantasy that, like, a kid would have, but at the same time, it's just also these— like 40, 50-year-old people's fantasy of what a child's fantasy but look would be. At,
1: look at the idea of all the people that grew up watching Hot for Teacher Van Halen video. You've got the 10-year-olds that were watching it, and then you've got the 20-year-olds and the 30-year-olds that were watching it, and I think almost everyone's looking at the teacher. I mean, that's one of the points of the music video and the song itself, and that's the culture. That's where we're coming from. 1992, it's still pretty much the 80s. I mean grunge and alternative rock as people like to think wasn't as prominent in this era. That's more of a two thousands fallacy. We're still really living in an eighties driven culture. There's still fucking acid washed jeans all over the place. And this movie really has that maintenance, but it still it 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 does reek of that super colorful it's the 90s we have to we can't let anyone know it's the 80s and it's that weird transition period from like 89 to 94 where everything still looked like one of those fast food cups with the the blue and yellow splatters and stuff all over it a bus seat for lack of better explanation everything just was really kitschy, everything seemed kid-friendly, and then you go back and watch movies. What's that fucking one with Patrick Stewart and the skateboarding kid where they take over the school? Mastermind! Mastermind! Even that, it's a an edgy 14-year-old's fantasy of well, if my school got taken over and I had my skateboard, I'd fucking do all sorts of cool stuff. This movie is just the weirdest fantasy of a I don't, I think. I, I mean, and you. You. I think you hit something earlier. I don't know any fucking kids that would actually like this movie, but it really does seem like a fantasy angle of, hey, remember when you were nine and everything kind of was, bleh, because you're nine years old and the world's a really scary place. What if Dom DeLuise showed up at your
2: house? Not only that, in the sequel, what if fucking Howard Hessman shows up to your house, huh? From WKRP just shows up and now he's Munchie. I don't understand
1: why you couldn't walk up and down the Sunset Boulevard and just find a Dom Deloise impersonator for Munchie Strikes Back, which I'll admit I've not seen the entire thing, but Angus Scrim, who also appears in Munchies, is in the movie, so if you ever wanted a reason to see it, it's at least for Angus Scrim. What I have seen of Munchie Strikes Back is it's it's fairly the same movie. Uh, he's some sort of interdimensional god now or something like I mean interdimensional might be a poor term for this and god also might be but in, in munchies he's part of the multiverse munchies you've got stone figures that were given life and that's all they are. But now we've got this really strange creature that we seems to have an infinite source of power. I mean, he gets weak if he makes things fly, but outside of that, he can get almost anything done. He can disappear, he can fly. And he loves pizza. He loves pizza. He apparently is the reason Mount Vesuvius blew up, that Chernobyl happened. He's also the reason that Atlantis sunk. A lot, I guess he's a villain, but we're supposed to love... There's no real clear-cut idea. He's of a lovable little is. Moffat. And that's just exploiting everything I'd say from, like, Jaws forward, moving into the animatronic era, moving into Muppets, Puppets, Bruce the Shark, Gremlins, Ghoulies, Goonies, mm-hmm.
2: Hobgoblins, Spookies, mm-hmm.
1: and so much more. I can't, I'm i out of fucking knockoffs. You're I don't... <laughs> out of
2: Unies. What's probably the most telling thing about this movie... Um, and telling about roger corman i guarantee you he fucking made money off of it that's the important thing both of them well he's got to still
1: be making money off of it because i bought the shout factory munchies and munchie dual disc blu-ray for this i mean people are out there to this day buying this this is uh, somebody requested it on death by dvd it's a sought-after product, and maybe we hit on He requested weird. munchies, not munchie, you fuck. Yeah, we went the extra mile to reference munchie and munchie strikes back. We really wanted to be inclusatory to your needs. But, I mean, I don't want to just say it's a childhood thing, because if you saw this as a child in 1987, I'm sure it did really hit you. But I don't think a kid could appreciate munchies or munchie. Munchie strike back, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all.
2: Well, I think a lot of it is, even if you saw it today, you might have an affinity for it if you're in your 30s and 40s, but I think it also has to do with remembering the era and being taken back to that era in some of the movies, because movies now just aren't like they were in the 80s, 70s, 80s, and 90s when people were just kind of trying all kinds of different things and, like, exploitation. I mean, that's, throw it out, see what sticks. That's the most important thing to them, and as that's kind of what I'm missing in film now is just not a lot of experimentation. There's just too much money involved. And then even, even when there isn't too much money involved, there's too much need and want for upward progression. There's too many people who are making homegrown films, which is great, but they're making it not in hopes of making a good movie. They're making it in hopes of, well, what can I turn this into making a, uh, doing the next Friday 13th movie. It's just like, well, don't worry about that. Just like worry about this one piece you're doing now. And then worry about the next one later. No director, like no directors from the, like the seventies and eighties, they were like, I'm just making movies. That's what I want to do. I mean, some of them were interested in getting into a studio system, but it just seems like that's what everybody's interested in. It's just like, I want to do the next horror remake. It's like, why why do you want to make them Just make you like make
1: a you movie. Look at the big scre- scream Queens and how their careers started. Linnea Quigley and the likes guys like Jim Wynorski, Dave Dakota, Fred Olin Ray. They're still working to this day doing the exact same thing they did in 1987, 1986. So you really love their horror movies back then. You go to IMDB them and see that they're doing a bunch of Lifetime movies, softcore porn, nudie cuties, all sorts of stuff like that now, and people always have this weird comment like, I don't know what happened to their career. Nothing. They're making the exact same movies that they made 30 years ago, 40 years ago. The exploitation genre, of course, has changed, but a lot of the people that modern horror audiences are so fond of and they attach themselves to weren't just hired guns, but they were... People that loved what they did, they want to direct movies, it doesn't necessarily matter what the fucking movies are. And Lucio Fulci all uses a great example. I'm sure he had, to some extent, an affinity toward horror pictures, but he didn't particularly give a shit. People are obsessed with the idea of John Carpenter, the idea of Toby Hooper. They don't care nearly as much about what you care about as you think they do. John Carpenter doesn't give a shit about Halloween. He gives a shit about the paycheck he gets from Halloween. That's about it. Toby Hooper spent almost all of his career trying to fucking escape from the Texas Chainsaw Master because it's all people wanted him to do where he had much bigger ideas that unfortunately never got to happen. But Jim Winorski, Fred Olin Ray, Dave Dakota, guys like that, they worked. And they work today. They they shoot out stuff like this. And you go back 20, 30 years and you find things like Munchie Strikes Back. Fucking written by Jim Winorski, directed by Jim Winorski. This wasn't some magnum opus that he sat down and rented a beautiful cabin in the woods somewhere to work for three or four weeks in solitude. This was fucking written on a cocktail napkin. That probably was the shooting script. It was like three pages on a napkin and question marks Dom DeLuise can we afford him clearly they couldn't they could afford angus scrim though i can give the movie some credit for at least being able to get that sweet 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 angus scrim but at the end of the day the cultural impact the importance of these movies are are, are bare none there's really nothing what comes from it when you watch them is the impact of culture on the movies all uh, munchies is much more adult based it's more of a a teenager's fantasy, but all the jokes are from that perspective. They're all very smart-ass. They're all very kitschy, and they're all very 80s. Munchies captures this childlike angle, and I think it does perfectly. It really captures an adolescent little boy's look at the world. I think it's... And of the time period. You know, I don't... This is situational. This is of the the early 90s. I think it's a, a firecracker-ridden <laughs> fart joke of a movie, but that's the point. That's what... I think you're supposed to be invoked to feel with munchies. And,
2: you know, it's fucking no deer hunter.
1: It's not an emotional movie by any means.
2: I got pretty emotional during the E.T. scene. I admit it.
0: (laughs) The end of the
1: movie when Munchies steals a Delta plane and flies off into the wild blue. That that really made me tear up a little bit. That was a hard (laughs) one for me. Well, that was a full episode about munchies, Ryan S. There you go. If you've got a movie you'd like to hear us talk about, just head over to www.deathbydvd.com, send us a message, find us on Twitter, deathbydvd, find us on Facebook, guess what, deathbydvd. Do you know what the Instagram may be? It's chunkylover425. I'm sorry, I'm lying, it's just deathbydvd. Find us, follow us, tell us to do things, because coming up with content on our own is awful. The ashtray is full, and the bottle is empty. Got chips cast, and keep trucking.
0: On the next episode. The world's greatest runs a junkyard with his best friend, Lamont Alexander Nash, on a rundown side of town. Lamont just wants his privacy and everything his way. And Hank, he just wants his color TV. <laughs> The two have crazy moments throughout, from a fake robbery to a discovered suitcase full of money. Find out what wacky situation they get into on the next episode of Death by DVD and Son. Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning.